Welcome to Trinity Presbyterian Church Owasso Sermon Podcast. Grace changes everything. Today we are going through the fastest, strongest, most expansive religious shift in American history. 40 million people who used to regularly go to church in the last 25 years no longer do. In fact, if America follows Europe, then not only are those who profess professing Christians going to be in the minority very soon, if not already, but they will soon find themselves to be a significant minority at that. The reason why the elders wanted me to preach on the book of Ezra and Nehemiah is in part because it's part of the passage of Scripture that we often don't read much of or study together. It's when the exiles returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple after the Babylonian exile, which happened in 586 B.C. But more importantly than that, it is a call for us to return from exile to pray, to long for not only our family members to return from exile, but our neighbors and our loved ones and our friends, even some of us. There are six themes that you see overarching the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, and so we're going to talk about those six themes today. And so I hope you have a pen. There are notes for you in your bulletin. I'm going to jump into all six of those themes quickly. Number one. When you read Ezra and Nehemiah, you see the first theme is that God's promises never fail. It's easy to think that God's promises have failed. More people than who were converted during the first great awakening, second great awakening, than every crusade Billy Graham has ever, ever had have deconverted or removed themselves from the church in the last 25 years. I want you to think about that for a moment. 40 million people is 15% of the adult population of this country. And they regularly attended church in the past 25 years, and now they no longer do. It is the greatest religious shift in American history. It is one and a quarter times more significant than the Second Great Awakening, which was the time when they had the greatest shift before this one, when people came to faith by the thousands And it's easy to think that God has neglected his promises, but Ezra and Nehemiah remind us that God never fails to fulfill what he has promised. By the time you get to Ezra and Nehemiah, when you read through the Bible, you really have turned a corner because every major movement of the Bible, beginning with the fall, of course, in Genesis chapter 3, and then Noah, Abraham, Moses, the rise of the kings, there's one familiar theme. What is that theme? Decline in idolatry. Decline in idolatry. Decline in idolatry. They continue to prostitute themselves on lesser gods, and they turn their eyes from what God has revealed about himself toward lesser things. But it is in Ezra and Nehemiah where God all of a sudden swings the pendulum the other direction and says, now is a time to regather. Now is a time to rebuild the temple. The rebuilding of the second temple was one of the major movements of the early church that was still in place whenever Jesus came and ministered. And here, 
the first 42,000, 42,600 and some odd, returned from exile to the Babylonians when they were conquered by the Persians, by the Medo-Persians, and King Cyrus took over. He gave a decree to anyone who wanted to return to their homeland that they could do it. And 42,000 packed their bags and came back to Jerusalem. And not only is it true that God's promises don't fail, but there is absolutely no power on earth, friends, that can stop those promises. The book of Ezra begins when the pagan king, King Cyrus, is used by God to be the means through which God's people are restored in the land, which was the fulfillment of the promise in the ancient world. It was a physical land. No longer is it today. We are the church. We are spiritual Israel. But then it was a physical land. And it was the fulfillment of God's faithfulness to them back then. And King Cyrus, a pagan king, was used. So also, by the way, was Nebuchadnezzar before him. So also, by the way, was Darius after him and Xerxes and Artaxerxes the first and Artaxerxes the second. Each of them gave decrees. Think about it. God in his providence used pagan kings to accomplish his purpose to show that his promises never fail. And what is his providence? The Westminster Shorter Catechism says that God's providence is his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all of his creatures and all of their actions. Proverbs 21 says that he holds the heart of the king in his hand and he turns it wherever he will. God's promises, theme number one, never fail. Theme number two, the Ezra and Nehemiah teach us about the renewal of the people of God and what are the elements of spiritual, cultural, social renewal for the people of God. Theme number two, Bible exposition and learning the Bible is a vital part of spiritual renewal. All right, we're about to go to Sunday school together. Are you ready? On the back of your um, notes is a chart. It's not perfect, but it was the best I could do watching the LSU and Florida football game put together what the whole story of the Bible is about. And so here it is. If you look at the back, you'll see that the notes have this chart, and it begins with creation. What happens after creation? Well, the book of Genesis takes you all the way through until you get to Moses. And then if you're going to follow the storyline of the Bible, you read Genesis first, and then you read Exodus, then Numbers, then Joshua, then Judges, first and second Samuel, first and second Kings. And then there are some supporting Old Testament books that support that main storyline. Leviticus accents the book of Numbers. Deuteronomy was the second telling of the law when they were wandering in the wilderness before the conquest. Ruth, what's the first line of the book of Ruth? At the time when the judges ruled the land. And so on and so forth. And you can notice that the people of God were split after Solomon. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, and Jeroboam, they split the kingdom, and all of Israel followed Jeroboam, and they went into exile to the north to be dispersed into the nations, never to return. Meanwhile, Rehoboam, through some faithful kings, maintained the southern kingdom of Judah, and they, in 586, were taken into exile by Babylon, where they remained for 70 years. 
Persians conquered the Babylonians. I told you it was Sunday school. Persians conquered the Babylonians in 538, and in 539, Cyrus issued a decree that those who wanted to could come back to Jerusalem. And so they returned to the land. So when was Ezra and Nehemiah written? You tell me. Look at the chart. It was written about this time. What other supporting book, according to this chart, would help you understand the context of this time in the life of Judah? Esther, that's right. And then what prophets also prophesied during this time of Ezra and Nehemiah? Haggai and Zechariah. You got it. Look at you. Biblical exposition and learning the Bible is an important part of spiritual renewal. The truth of the matter is we have forgotten how to read the Bible. We've also forgotten what the Bible means from start to finish. Creation, fall, redemption, glory. That's the beat of Jesus' story. And if you follow this good beat, you will fall at Jesus' feet. All of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation speaks about Christ. And it is in this grand narrative. In fact, there are 50 years... There are 50 years between Ezra chapter 6 and Ezra chapter 7, between Zerubbabel's reign and when Ezra comes onto the scene. Massive amounts of time pass in the biblical story, but we as God's people, we got to know this stuff. And we need to learn it. And we need to teach it to our children. Not because by knowing Scripture, God loves us more, but because this is our family story. In my family, there is, a, there is a tale that we think is true, although we can't quite confirm it on Ancestry.com, that our, my great-great-great-great-grandfather came over from Sweden. And the story goes that only, the only thing he had on the boat were the clothes on his back and his Swedish Bible. Oh, isn't that sweet? I think it's true. My grandmother tells it like it's true. But um, this is our story. And we need to know it. We don't need to know it because by our Bible knowledge, God loves us more. Or by our Bible knowledge, we can remind those who don't know it that we know the Bible better. No, we know it because this is our family history. And in a time when we are so rootless as a country, as a Western world, we want to get re-rooted in the biblical story because it all points to Christ, who is the one who provides us the rest we so ardently long for. Theme number three, exile shocks idolatry out of our lives. One thing happens as you read through the Bible over and over and over again is you realize that there is examples of idolatry all the way until the Babylonian captivity. And what happens then? For the first time in biblical history, Israel shocked by receiving the covenant curses of God, which he promised he would do if they were unfaithful. And he did. He removed them from the land, and it shocked idolatry out of their system. And friends, maybe God has called 40 million people away from the church in the last 25 years to shock you out of yours and to shock them out of theirs. Maybe the church is not going to grow stronger, but maybe... The church grows stronger by having fewer numbers. 
Maybe the church is purified in a time when we too are in a Babylonian exile. Maybe the church is going to feel more like the European church. This country, even in this state, feel more like the European church. And that does not mean God has been unfaithful to his promise, nor does it mean that we are not to love his word. It may mean that he's trying to shock the idolatry out of our system. And so as you heard the names that we prayed for earlier, please yearn and pray and long for those people to return and to ask the Lord to give you the ways to help shepherd and nurture and encourage them with the good news of the gospel because we of all people ought to be the most humble, just like Jeff and Julia read in Philippians chapter 2. Theme number four, it takes all of us. You'll notice as you read this book that I'll warn you, there are some, it takes you about an hour and a half to read Ezra and Nehemiah. And if you put it on audio, sometimes my wife likes to just hear the genealogies. It's hard to read through them sometimes, but she really appreciates them more whenever she listens to them. Maybe you would too. You get to parts of Ezra and Nehemiah and it's just recounting the sons of so-and-so and the sons of so-and-so and the men of so-and-so. 42,000 of them, there's a lot of them. And I love that that. Uh, when Ezra is writing this, I love that he gets to Ezra chapter 2, verse 31. Not one person is missing. It takes all of us. Not one is missing. And he's mentioning the names, and he goes, and the sons, and he can't remember the guy's name. He says, the sons of the other Elam, 1,254. I love it. Not even the other Elam was left out. God knows your name. He's got you. One of the staggering things when you read about uh, the, the people, you read in Nehemiah chapter 3, you read about them going and they're, they're serving up against the wall. What's astounding about Nehemiah chapter 3, that the most, um, most, the most popular book written on Nehemiah in the last 25 years that I know of is Chuck Swindoll's book on Nehemiah. Some of you have it in your home called Hand Me Another Brick. Anybody have this book? He doesn't even talk about Nehemiah chapter 3 in that book. But I love Nehemiah chapter 3 because when you read it, it says, and next to them, so-and-so served on the wall. And next to them, so-and-so tended the sheep gate. And what you learn through Nehemiah chapter 3, which seems like this long description of people, is that next to each other were people of different classes, different races, different callings, and different people all throughout the ancient world. It takes all of us. You had clergy serving next to laity. You had the rich serving next to the poor. You had the men serving next to the women. As though Nehemiah and Ezra were trying to drive home the point. It takes every one of us. Do you remember a couple of uh, uh, weeks ago when Chuck Simmons gave the update to the church and he was like dropping our ages in that story? You remember, you know, he said the story like he said, I was a, I was a 20-year-old college student whenever 1997 uh, uh, when, in 1997 when people began to pray about a church plant in this area and um, it, um, it's staggering to think that your next pastor may be sitting in this room and they could be six or seven it takes all of us and children I know sometimes coming to church is hard, and it's like, oh, man, there's not enough goldfish. They ran out. I need another, more crayons to help follow through. Adults say the same thing, by the way. But we are helping you develop rhythms and things 
in life, habits that will shape your heart in ways that you don't yet understand, but one day you will. And we pray that you'll be profoundly thankful and grateful for them. Theme number five. We need something more than our concerted effort. Most people look uh, to the book of Ezra and Nehemiah to talk about what biblical theme. If you ever do a Bible study on Ezra and Nehemiah, if I were a betting man, I would say that it talks a lot about leadership. Ezra and Nehemiah, the book of um, leadership. Well, it is true. You can learn some good principles of leadership from the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, but that is not the point of the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. The most important theme is that God keeps his promises. And while you can learn a great deal about leadership, one of the things that you actually learn is that we need something more than leadership here. We need something more than our concerted effort to rebuild the people of God, to rebuild the church. What you actually have in Ezra is rebuilding of a temple despite great opposition. And you have in in Nehemiah rehearsing of God's word despite profound opposition. And at the very end of each book, it shows how sin is still there. And therefore, we need something more than our concerted effort to defeat the great enemies that destroy our lives and his visible church. Sin from within and, of course, from without. Theme number six. Through powerlessness, we receive true power. The people of God in Ezra and Nehemiah are back in the land, and they are completely powerless. They are still a colony. In fact, it's interesting. They're so powerless that those people who did not go into the Assyrian exile in the northern kingdom of Israel, they're still roaming the land. And they set up a temple, and they tried to continue the traditions of Moses at Mount Gerizim. And when they returned to the land, these people coming out of the Babylonian exile meet some people who never left. And they're called the Samaritans. And so you first see the struggle between the Jews and the Samaritans. Samaritans never left the land. They stayed there. They tried to maintain their own laws, and they created a cult religion out of Mount Gerizim. And they're the ones, actually, who, though they say they profess faith in the same God, they're the ones who are standing in the way of them rebuilding the temple and rebuilding the wall. And we are utterly powerless in the same way today. We can't rebuild the church through better marketing or better infolding principles. We rebuild the church, friends, the same way the church has always been built, through faith and repentance. We rebuild the church through our consistent, ordinary practices of grace. We rebuild the church by coming to worship every week and to coming before his word and letting it shape our hearts. The way that the church was built in the first place was by the Lord Jesus Christ who took on flesh, who was the one who proclaimed for us that God's promises never failed, who was the one who was not just the word we should learn, but he was the incarnate word. He was the living word who came to provide for us true spiritual renewal. He was the one who came into the world so that we might 
be delivered from idolatry because he was shocked to death for us. And Jesus was the one who said, though it takes all of us, only one of us can pay the price for you. And Christ went to the cross for all of us so that no matter who we are, greatest or least, however you define those, we might be like the stones going up on this church next door, essential to its foundation. It was Jesus who told us that we needed something more than our concerted effort, and so he said, I'll supply it for you. I will be perfect for you. He always has been, always will be. And he died on the cross so that we might have life indeed. And Jesus was the one who, though powerful beyond description, became powerless for us at the hands of sinful men and died on the cross. Listen, the way to read Ezra and Nehemiah is not to just be handed another brick and apply leadership principles. It's not just to read God's word and say, yes, I finally know how to put the Bible together, the whole storyline. I know where Ezra and Nehemiah go in the big picture. But it's to see the true Ezra, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was not just the scribe who wrote down God's word and proclaimed it to the people, but he was indeed the living word. He was not just the governor, Nehemiah, who came to rule over the people. Jesus was our true king who subdues us and all of our enemies for the sake of his glory and of his reign, and he invites you to do the same. Jesus wasn't the one who came to build up walls to let others in. Jesus said, I want you to build the church. I mean, to keep others out, rather, I want you to build the church so that you can let others in because he was the true temple. Don't you see that every aspect of Nehemiah, every one of these themes, is pointing us to a different, beautiful, crazy, cool aspect of the life of Jesus. And what he calls us to do over this fall series is he calls us to practice those ordinary means of grace as you Return from exile. Return from exile. Come back to him through repentance and grace. Of the 40 million people who have left the church in the last 25 years, the vast majority of them have said that they are willing to come back if they are nudged. There's about 5% of those who aren't coming back. They're ex-evangelicals. They're a much smaller percentage than we typically think. But the reality of them hurts because there are some dear loved ones of ours. And those ex-evangelicals probably aren't coming back to the evangelical church. They may come back to church, but not to the evangelical church for a whole host of reasons that stem and created their hurt. But up to 30 million of those 40 million people would be willing to come back if they were nudged. And so those names that you called out Maybe you should nudge them, invite them, come with you. We'll find a way to add more chairs. There's chairs in the front. Some of you will need to be front row Presbyterians instead of back row Baptists. We'll fill it. Though they are two different books, they show us in the same history and same themes that God's promises never fail. The Bible exposition And learning the Bible is a vital part of spiritual renewal that exile shocks idolatry out of our lives. 
And maybe, by the way, that's why you're going through what you're going through. That it takes all of us, that we need something more than our concerted effort, and through Jesus' powerlessness, we are saved. And this morning, as you come to the Lord's table, would you come in faith and repentance yet again and be renewed by this amazing overarching story that he has invited you into because this is your family story. Let's pray.